News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. City of Ottawa has declared a state of emergency following days of protests and chaos led by the trucker convoy demonstrations over COVID-19 restrictions. So what does that mean, though? And what is the situation like this morning in our nation's capital? David Aiken joins us now for more on this. Good morning, David. Good morning, Simi. And uh, right now, actually, uh, some of the residents saying best night of sleep they've had in a long time. It was relatively quieter last night, although the protests are still here. And there was lots of police activity overnight. But uh, as I'm, I'm looking right now, our, our bureau is 14 floors up looking out over the National War Memorial, which I should point out is fenced. It's surrounded by a fence. That's the first time people who've lived in Ottawa for 50 years can, re- can rem- remember that that we've had to shut down our National War Memorial with a fence. Um, so that's the state as I'm looking down right now. It's a cool, uh, sunny morning. Okay, so you talked about the increasing police presence there. Do you think, did that have an impact? Because it seems like there was more pushback from authorities over the weekend. There was. So uh, the, the big news last night was that the mayor, Jim Watson, declared a state of emergency. Um, we're not really clear what exactly effect that will have. It doesn't give the city any more particular legal powers. What it does is sort of uh, it's a procedural thing. So the city can now buy things, for example, if it needs to purchase supplies quicker without some of the red tape that they normally would have to do. It may create some more flexibility for provincial or federal authorities to, to respond. But nonetheless, your national capital right now is in a state of emergency. Uh, the mayor is saying that uh, police have lost control of the downtown core. Last night, police uh, did arrest seven people, mostly on charges of mischief, uh, some on uh, drinking while in their vehicle. You're not allowed to do that, of course. Um, and uh, police also moved in in riot gear with weapons uh, to a, a supply depot near Parliament Hill that the protesters had been using to store fuel and amass food. And police moved in, broke that up and seized that material. This is one of the ways police believe they can perhaps encourage more of these protesters in their vehicles to leave is simply intercept uh, sort of the convoys of, uh, of diesel and jerry cans uh, moving up to the vehicles parked on the hill. So that was yesterday. Police were very active doing that. Uh, there was also one other disturbing incident, and this has got, you know, the, the residents, there's 50,000 people live in, in the sort of the area that is affected by this protest, um, most in apartment buildings. And one resident uh, put up some uh, pictures and wow. video of a scene where somebody came into the apartment vestibule, taped the doors shut, and then tried to light the apartment building on fire. Intercepted by someone in the building, this person identified this, who was trying to light the building on fire, said he was a protester. Uh, the, the fire was extinguished. Nobody was hurt. Police are investigating. But it's incidents like that, again, that really have the residents on edge and, yeah. uh, and have increased the pressure on the city to uh, clear out these protesters who, you know, the organizers say they're peaceful. They're not doing any of this. It's somebody else. It may be somebody else, but it's happening. And that's why residents want the downtown cleared. Okay, so has the political attitude, do you get the sense, changed towards what's going on there? Are some politicians kind of walking things back? 
I wouldn't say walking things back, but I do think there is some division on the conservative side, which I find interesting. Interesting because, um, you know, Aaron O'Toole lost his job last week, um, ostensibly because he couldn't keep the party united. And as soon as he leaves, the party now has many different views or MPs on this protest. Um, the Saskatchewan MPs, and, uh, you know, they, they're opposing with truckers and they support them. Uh, a Lethbridge MP, conservative Rachel Thomas, had an op-ed over the weekend in which he declared her support for the convoy. But a Quebec conservative Conservative MP Pierre Paulus, he's a former colonel in the army. He's a law and order guy. He declared last week that these are radicals and anarchists now in the streets. That the protest has got out of hand. He wants this cleared. He called it the siege of Ottawa. He was joined by another on Eastern Ontario MP, a woman named Shelby Newman Cramp. She too said it is time to go. And the interim leader of the Conservatives, Candace Bergen from Manitoba, who had been four square behind these protesters, now as interim leader, she's put a statement out acknowledging for the first time this demonstration has to go if that happens all the liberals and conservatives and or, oh, sorry all the liberals new democrats and the bloc they've all said yeah it's it's time for the demonstration to go what will they do about it we're not sure hmm. i mentioned that we have a state of emergency in the national capital of the country we have not heard from the prime minister of the country respond to that the the premier of the province has pretty much said we got nothing to add and and apparently they believe that there's enough police here to do whatever needs to be done um, and we haven't heard from the only guy who wants to be the new leader of the Conservatives. That's the MP, Pierre Polyev. And Polyev is an Ottawa MP. I mean, his constituents, of which I'm one, we live in Ottawa, we work in Ottawa. And we and Polyev has earlier on sided with the, quote, truckers. But we haven't heard him since he, well, mm -hmm. he hasn't taken any questions since he declared the... Uh, for the leadership, and uh, we certainly haven't heard anything from him since his mayor declared a state of emergency in his city. Wow. So we'll okay. see about that today. Yeah, what else is going to be happening today? I understand there's some court maneuvers happening. Yeah, that's the big thing today. At 1 p.m. Eastern, uh, a, a, a group representing residents who are suing the truckers for $10 million will be in court with the lawyers representing these protesters. Uh, that This matter started on Friday, was put over by the judge till today. Um, whatever happens, one, the judge on Friday said something rather remarkable, which was, you know, the orders that are being asked, that he's being asked to produce, you know, ordering truckers off the streets, he says, I can't issue an order if there's no means to enforce it. He, he, that's what right. the judge is sort of struggling with, and that gets back to our problems with policing, that the police are outnumbered here, there's a state of emergency, and even if a judge issued an order, who's going to enforce it? It's interesting, though, that there's not more pressure on like the premier to do more here, too, because, I mean, the, Ontario would be involved in doing something here, wouldn't they? There are 100 Ontario provincial police officers, and I've seen um, some officers from, say, Toronto, you know, which is a good five-hour drive away from Ottawa. So there are definitely some other police forces here, and I'm looking at some OPP cars right now. Um, but, um, yes, uh, that would certainly be a question that hmm. uh, presumably the Premier is going to get today um, when, when he faces reporters. All right, David, thank you for the update. Okay, take care, Simi. Cheers. This is Mornings with Simi. You may not have noticed something very interesting happening in the United States over the weekend, and that is a number of U.S. politicians openly admitting that their people were investing in and fundraising for the trucker convoy protests happening in Canada. And we're talking kind of deeply investing in this. For more on this story and the developments that happened, we're joined now by Reggie Giacchini, our global Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Okay, so this seems to have been started by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. What did he have to say? 
Well, I mean, look, it was started by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who had things to say about the uh, the the GoFundMe uh, account that had been set up with money uh, for uh, to, to give into the, the truckers' convoy. Uh, but this is something that has kind of ex- expanded beyond Ron DeSantis. This is Ron DeSantis. This is the Attorney General in Texas, Ken Paxton. This is Attorneys General from uh, Louisiana and from Maryland, and also uh, from Senator Ted Cruz and from Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. This is a growing movement within the Republican. Party to stand, quote unquote, in solidarity with the truckers, with the convoy that is in Ottawa, trying to use it to drum up, uh, you know, emotions and potential aggressions within their own base for the people that are listening. This is one of those rare stories where something's happening in Canada and it's actually getting traction in the United States, but for all of the wrong reasons. Well, this is what I thought, too. I thought, since when have we ever heard these particular politicians talk about Canada, except for Ted Cruz, when he was renouncing his Canadian citizenship? Yeah. And I mean, look, over the weekend, Ted Cruz called these truckers here. He said not only are they standing up for Canada, they're also standing up for America. And he was standing with them, saying that this is kind of that rise against, you know, tyrannical governments uh, that needs to happen across the United States. And there is that fear now that this is something that's going to potentially spark interest in the United States. There was a potential for a trucker convoy in Washington coming across from California. Facebook took down the pages for that. But the situation in Ottawa is really starting to garner kind of a global attention here. And there is a fear that this is going to kind of spread more misinformation based on what they're seeing in Ottawa and what simply doesn't exist in reality, both in Canada and the U.S. Okay, so that's, they seem to be using this as an opportunity then. Is this the first time, Reggie, that you can think of where you've seen this kind of almost like financial commitment to a protest happening in Canada? Like that, this is, seems like there's a lot of U.S. involvement here. Yeah, there is a lot of U.S. involvement. And look, there's been some research to show that it's not just money from the United States. It's money coming in from Israel. It's money coming in from the United Kingdom. There's kind of a global outreach here for the money that's being pushed in towards this convoy. But the fact that so much of it is being drummed up at the United States is really a culmination of what we saw over four years, where it was this pushback, not against the mainstream media or just including mainstream media, but also against governments that don't lean towards the right and the alt-right. And we're starting to see some of that money pile up to say, look, we stand with you. There are politicians. There are people like Donald Trump, who will stand with you. Just in the last couple of days, he reached out uh, via a statement to call the prime minister a far left lunatic. So this is where Republican politics are in the United States and the big kind of fight against GoFundMe for not handing the money over. We have Ted Cruz saying that he wants to open up, you know, uh, an unfair trade practices investigation into GoFundMe. So, I mean, this is kind of a wild swinging, um, you know, talking point in the United States to see where it's going to go. Okay, and so we should be clear that GoFundMe here has now said they will automatically refund all those donations after first saying that people had to ask for the for the refund now they're saying they'll just do it have any of these kinds of protests showed up in the united states reggie there, I mean, not to a scale that we've seen uh, in Ottawa um, and not that any, any that I've actually come across uh, in reading or that's kind of made any kind of headline. There was going to be one, like I said, coming from California to Washington, but Facebook took down uh, the information. That's obviously now being picked up and spun around by the right-wing media to say that more voices are being silenced. But there is a fear here that this is going to drum up support for what's happening in Ottawa and have it show up in states across the U.S. as people try to push back against a vaccine mandate, Simi, that I need to say does not exist. The Supreme Court ruled against a vaccine mandate federally in the United States. This is going to be company-wide, potentially statewide, but they're arguing against something that simply isn't there. Hmm. All right, Reggie, thank you. Thank you. That is our Reggie Giacchini there, Global Washington correspondent, talking about the United States politicians, some politicians in the United States, uh, clearly getting involved in what is happening here in Canada. And I guess my question to you this morning is, 
are we okay with that? We're always feeling like, oh, the United States doesn't pay attention to us. Is this the kind of attention, though, that we want? You can email me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, this weekend saw protests all across the country in support of the truckers' convoy in Ottawa, also in opposition to it. In Vancouver, the counter-protest blocked the convoy from getting downtown via Terminal Avenue, but eventually trucks and vehicles made their way downtown where they were met by more counter-protesters. Later this morning, we're going to be talking to the Vancouver Police Department about how they are dealing with all of this, how they dealt with this on the weekend, how they'll be dealing with future situations. Right now, though, let's talk to someone who was there in the middle of all of it. Jen St. Dennis joins us now, a downtown east side beat reporter with the TIE. Jen, thanks so much for being here this morning. Thanks, Simi. So what was it like for you? Tell me, where did you go, first of all? Where were you? So I actually wasn't I wasn't working on Saturday. That's my day off. But I live really close to Burrard Street. And so I kind of couldn't ignore it. So in the middle of the day, I decided to just go out on Burrard Street and see what was happening. And I just kind of walked down Burrard all the way to Robson and Burrard, which was kind of the epicenter of the protest. It was where um, the protesters ended up. And there was both vehicles and a lot of people on foot kind of gathered there with a bunch of flags and whatever, what have you. Right. It was certainly eventful from what I could see when I was following along there. What was the atmosphere like? So sometimes the atmosphere was really celebratory. Um, We know that these protesters have really used the Canadian flag a lot. And so they've decked out their vehicles. I saw people commenting like it reminded them of the Olympics in 2010 when people would walk around kind of maybe honking their horns with Canadian flags. But um, it was it was just a lot of honking, and there was definitely um, some anger as well. There was there were protest counter protesters standing on the side, especially around the St. Paul's Hospital on Burrard Street, with signs, various signs, kind of saying, you know, usually pretty lighthearted. Some said, you know, like honk if you love vaccines, honk if you're pro-vax. Some saying like leave hospitals alone. And, you know, people in the cars were quite annoyed by the signs and were, were kind of yelling at people, sometimes arguing with them. And there was sometimes people, counter protesters were ignoring them. Sometimes they were getting into um, into engagements. And then at Robson and Burrard, it was um, a little bit different. It was there was definitely some some anger there for sure. OK, so it sounds like it was a tense situation. It was tense in parts and it was celebratory in parts. So it was just, you didn't really know what to expect. Sometimes you'd be walking along the street, people, some, a lot of people on the street walking by would be like supporting the protesters, um, other people giving thumbs down. And then at Robson and Burrard actually saw, you know, the media was really sort of the target of this, well, not, not the target, but it was, they said it was the target. They were calling it the media is the virus. Convoy. And the reason they were at Robson and Burrard is because that's where um, television news station CTV is located. Right. Okay. So it did, you know, was there, would you say anger? Did people, for the most part, did they behave like, how did you feel walking down there? I felt mostly safe. I, you know, I specifically didn't have anything that identified me as a journalist because I just didn't think that would go over very well. I had just brought my phone. I didn't have my camera around my neck or anything like that. Um, but when I was at Robson and Burrard, you know, I was just taking some photos with my phone. Um, nobody minded that. Nobody tried to stop me. But then there was a TV cameraman um, sort of against the wall of the Lululemon store. He had his camera on the ground. And I just all of a sudden noticed these two men just rushing over, yelling like at the top of their lungs, like, liar, liar, liar. 
um, really aggressively. A police officer intervened immediately, like got in between them and the cameraman. Um, and the cameraman who was, I think he was actually with, had security with him too. So he, they kind of just left right away. Right. Um, what so was that, it? That, that, that was a little bit intense. I would imagine. What was the police presence like here? Because I know that the Vancouver police were very open about this. They were talking about how they were moving people through. What was that like? So there was a lot of police at Robson and Burrard, um, and they did seem to be pretty actively, like they were on foot um, around, like I said, when this, when this really tense interaction happened, uh, they moved in right away, got right in between um, and, and sort of diffused the situation. So that, that's what I saw. I wasn't at, at any of the counter protests in other parts of the city where it was a little bit more, you know, people actually trying to blockade the protests. I didn't see that happening on Burrard. Right. OK, this was the one that was right downtown. But OK, interesting that it did kind of move over to St. Paul's Hospital, which I know that that always disappoints people when they see this happening outside hospitals. Yeah, and I think this was a real kind of mistake of the the convoy protesters. You know, I understand that people um, who don't want to get vaccinated are are angry and upset. You know, they feel kind of shut out of society. I understand the anger there. What I think a lot of people in Vancouver got really upset about was that this convoy, which includes people just honking their horns constantly, like we know that from Ottawa, we know that from other cities, um, just get it being really, really loud that they were going to go past hospitals. And we've seen, and, you know, I didn't see any healthcare workers being harassed at all, but we've seen at other protests recently, like in New Westminster a few weeks ago, um, we have seen hospital workers and healthcare workers, you know, actually being harassed by anti-vax protesters. So I think people were really, really alarmed when they heard that the, the um, this convoy protest was going to go through, like, go past not one, but three hospitals in Vancouver. So that's where a lot of the counter-protesters were really clustered around St. Paul. Right. And some of them were former patients who were really inspired to come out and and kind of support healthcare workers and try to do their part. Right. But it does sound like everything was kept moving. Yes, the convoy kept moving. That's From what I saw in Burrard, the convoy just kept moving. Um, and, it, and, the, and the counter-protesters were on the side, on the sidewalk. Sometimes they were going into traffic to talk with with the counter protesters, but it was, it was verbal, you know, the, the interactions were just talking. It wasn't getting physical. Right. Did you talk to anybody as well about why they were there? So I was a little reluctant after I saw this cameraman being kind of approached that way really aggressively. I didn't approach anyone specifically to ask why they were there, but I observed a lot of interactions between the counter protesters and the protesters. Um, they were kind of talking about the things we usually hear, you know, their suspicion that vaccines aren't safe. Um, you know, there was an argument going on, like one man had um, compared what was happening to, you know, like Nazi Germany. And so oh people boy. were saying like, no, you can't say, yeah, that's, yeah. And that's rhetoric we've heard over and over again. Um, so, yeah, so that it was that kind of stuff that was. That right. Was in, in Ottawa also, Jen, we've seen some of the, you know, the signage and everything that has really garnered a lot of attention on social media about the, the hate speech on the signage. Was there anything like that or was it a different kind of protest here? You know, I think there was if you kind of knew where to look. And I didn't recognize this at first, but there were two young men at Burrard and Robson who had these um, flags. And I didn't know what they were at first. They were actually the Red Ensign, which is Canada's old flag before 1965. I don't, I've never seen it. I didn't know what it looked like. So um, I took some photos. Later, I realized um, that this Red Ensign flag has actually kind of been adopted uh, by people with like anti-immigration views or white supremacists, the Proud Boys have used it. Um, and so that made me really realize, you know, we have to kind of educate ourselves about the signs and signals that 
um, white supremacists are using these days and, and really know what we're seeing when we see it, because it can be very subtle. Right. All right. Well, thanks so much for sharing your experiences with us. Thank you, Simi. That's Jen St. Dennis, downtown Eastside beat reporter with the Tai, who was in and among the protesters and counter-protesters in downtown Vancouver on Saturday. And you know what? Kudos to the Vancouver Police Department for being there, for being seemingly like in control of things, keeping things moving there. Clearly, they had a plan. We are going to be talking to them coming up in this hour. This is Mornings with Simi. So what did a shooting in Thailand have to do with the gang situation in Vancouver? Well, it turns out quite a lot. Joining us now is Kim Boland, crime reporter for the Vancouver Sun, to help us connect the dots on this. Kim, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Okay, so what happened in Thailand? Well, on Friday night local time on the island of Phuket, a very popular tourist destination, uh, a young man was arriving back at a luxury villa right on the water, And we've seen surveillance video of what happened next. He got out of a car, and two gunmen jumped out of the bushes and just started firing. 19 shots overall were fired, and he was killed. Now, initial reports out of Thailand said this was a Canadian, uh, and that there were two different names that were circulating in connection with him. But I was able to confirm with my sources that it was, in fact, former Abbotsford resident uh, Jimmy Sandu a United Nations gangster who grew up here in B.C., who was involved in, you know, so many incidents here that he ended up being deported because his family hadn't obtained Canadian citizenship for him, even though he basically grew up here. Uh, So he's been out of the country since 2016, still involved with the United Nations gang, and now he's dead. What's so shocking about one one of the things, I guess I should say, that is so shocking about this is, as you mentioned, that surveillance video, all of this was caught on tape. All of it was caught on tape. These looked like hired hitmen. They did not look like locals. I heard they were speaking another language, uh, neither English uh, nor Thai. Uh, So, you know, somebody arranged for this murder. And obviously, uh, you know, police in Canada are going to be working closely with police in Thailand because, uh, you know, people involved in the gang conflict here are looking to target, uh, you know, their enemies wherever they are. So, you know, it was kind of amazing because what I heard from people that knew Jimmy, his nickname was Slice, he had a big scar on his cheek, uh, was that he had only recently bought this villa and moved to Thailand from Vietnam and um, that very few people knew where he was. So, you know, you really can't run and hide from this life, unfortunately. Um, He was very close to people that were killed last year in B.C., uh, specifically Carmen Graywall, that very, you know, dramatic murder outside of the airport last Mother's Day. Uh, So, and then there was retaliation for that here. So even though he's long removed from B.C., he was still believed to be calling the shots, if you will. So are there there any concerns, Kim, that this might come back and impact sort of the gang situation here? Oh, for sure. Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit, which is our anti-gang unit, has already said uh, that they're sort of stepping up all their intelligence gathering and making sure that they, uh, you know, can get ahead of any potential retaliation here. Uh, Interestingly, some of these guys are living elsewhere in the world as well, He has a close associate also who grew up in Abbotsford who's settled in Dubai right now and uh, was robbed last week. 
uh, in kind of a, a very, you know, appears to be a gang rivalry thing as opposed to a random attack. Uh, so, you know, there could be retaliation here. There could be retaliation elsewhere. Kim, that's amazing. Like, we tend to think of this as like, oh, a Metro Vancouver thing, but the way it's being described and from these stories, this is a, a global issue. This, this has tentacles everywhere. It does, because that's the way the drug trade works, right? And uh, people who are, um, you know, influential here, they make connections internationally, and they sometimes move abroad to hide out uh, because they feel they're going to be targeted here, or they move abroad in the case of uh, Jimmy Sandu because they've been deported from Canada. And it doesn't mean they're out of the drug trade. It doesn't mean that they lose their local connections he, in fact, in 2018, so about two years after he was deported, was arrested in India, uh, the country of his birth, and accused of running a major ketamine uh, ring or, or operation there with a factory and everything. Uh, he got out on bail on those charges, which likely would have carried decades behind bars if convicted. Uh, but he then kind of disappeared. And, you know, the rumors were he was going back and forth between Dubai and Southeast Asia. And now, you know, he clearly was in Thailand where he Hmm. lost his life. Okay, so clearly it does also sound like then police here are on guard and they're they're hoping something doesn't happen, but they're 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 preparing for it. They certainly are. And, you know, working with people internationally as well. I mean, you know, it never really goes away, this gang conflict, right? But there are periods, lulls, if you will, where it's quieter and uh, where, you know, we don't have the really ridiculous brazen shootings at airports, at malls, you know. Uh, But it's concerning, for sure. And uh, I think police will be working with uh, all their counterparts, both across the country and internationally, to try and head off more violence. A really interesting note from your story, which is up at VancouverSun.com, Kim, is that he was carrying a Canadian passport. He was carrying a Canadian passport in someone else's name with his photo on it. Um, So, you know, that's obviously going to be something that's going to be further investigated. Uh, You know, this guy, I was at his... um, you know, deportation hearing where he was appealing to the Immigration Refugee Board to let him stay in Canada back in 2015. He had serious assault convictions at the time. And, you know, he saw himself as Canadian. I mean, this is where he grew up. And uh, it was just a matter of his family had not arranged to get him his citizenship when he was younger. And uh, then he was facing deportation. He also was charged here uh, with killing uh, the leader of the Red Scorpions, like slashing him uh, across the throat uh, in a random kind of meeting in Abbotsford outside of business. Uh, but uh, then about a year later, those charges were stayed uh, without right. going to trial, right? So all of this history here, you know, impacted this guy's life and to the point where he was deported. Uh, now, you know, would he have been safe if he stayed in Canada? I mean, we can only speculate. Who knows? All right, Kim, thank you. My pleasure. Kim Boland, crime reporter for the Vancouver Sun. Read her latest story on this at VancouverSun.com, but it's about a notorious former BC gangster shot and killed in Thailand, someone who had been deported from Canada just years ago. Kim's got all the details on that. This is Mornings with Simi.
Pretty challenging situation in Vancouver on Saturday for sure when you had the trucker convoy protests moving in. You had counter-protesters waiting at different places, everybody kind of coming to a head in downtown Vancouver. VPD did an amazing job keeping things moving, and of course they are preparing for more situations like this. So we thought, let's talk about that plan. Joining us now is Sergeant Steve Addison, spokesperson with the Vancouver Police Department. Thanks for being with us this morning. No problem. Good morning, Simi. Boy, that must have been a lot of work and effort that went into planning that on Saturday. What kind of approach did the VPD take? Yeah, super challenging um, just with this particular protest and because we knew there were going to be a lot of people uh, coming into the city from other um, suburbs uh, to participate in protests. And we knew this was going to cause uh, really a major inconvenience for Vancouver residents. We also knew there was a lot of concern that the particularly the vehicle convoy was going to pass through hospitals, uh, potentially cause a significant amount of traffic gridlock. So our primary goals were to keep traffic moving, uh, to provide a safe environment for people to engage in peaceful and lawful protest. And while there were a few small skirmishes throughout the day and a couple of arrests that resulted from people acting unlawfully, um, by and large, we accomplished our objectives, which were to help facilitate peaceful pro- protest, uh, to mitigate violence and disorder. There were no serious assaults, no reported hate crimes, no significant disruptions at the hospitals. There was some civil disobedience, things like horn honking and traffic violations, protesters walking in traffic or lying on the road. But ultimately, these protesters, thousands of people came to the city, they did their thing, they said their piece, and they left. Most of them were gone by dinner time, and that's pretty successful in our books. I would say so, yeah. So was there any communication ahead of time, Sergeant Addison, about, okay, what are your plans? How is this going to work? Here's what we're going to do. Yeah, we, we're always monitoring. Uh, we have more than 700, we had more than 700 protests in this city uh, last year for a variety of causes. We knew this was happening. We had plans in place. We're always monitoring, we're always assessing, and we're always uh, reevaluating. So while we don't uh, discuss specifically what our strategies are and what our plans are, uh, we were prepared for this. We had plans in place. And we're continuing to develop plans for any future protests that may occur. Right. Was there, was this an, a lot of it, was it in response to sort of what you saw happening elsewhere as well? I mean, I know there's been criticism of Ottawa police. <laughs> did you, did you develop a plan based on here is what our objectives are? We don't want to see this happening. Yeah, certainly. We learned from our own experience, having policed hundreds of protests every year for uh, a variety of causes, but also from from watching and learning from what's happening in other cities. And certainly, the situation uh, in other cities is uh, is very challenging for the police agencies there. Uh, we've been watching and and learning from that, and we uh, develop our plans. Uh, based on all of the knowledge and information and experience that we have in dealing with these situations. So what is the approach going to be moving forward? Like we know this will probably happen again, right? Perhaps even next weekend. It may. It may. And as I say, we're always, um, we're very experienced in dealing with protests, hundreds of years or hundreds of protests a year. Um, we're always assessing, we're always monitoring, we're always communicating and working on plans. We can't discuss those plans. We can't discuss those strategies, um, but we're monitoring it very closely. We will be prepared should another protest happen uh, today, tomorrow, on the weekend, at any time. Right. So as you said, though, you're monitoring all, like, would you monitor social media to see what's happening? Yeah, so a lot of the uh, this uh, this um, uh, protest that happened on the weekend, there was no secret that it was going to happen. It was uh, talked about in advance. It was talked about on social media. Um, so we do o- monitor um, both open source through social media, but we have um, 
other ways to, to, to gather information, to investigate, and to uh, make sure that we're aware and that appropriate plans are, are in place. Ultimately, we knew this was going to happen. We knew there were going to be thousands of people that were going to come into the city to express their views. We, we support and uh, try to provide a, a, a safe environment for people to uh, express their views. We know in this situation there were a lot of people who feel, feel very passionately about uh, their causes. Um, our job is to provide a safe and lawful environment for people to uh, assemble and to express their views. And ultimately, that's what happened on Saturday. Okay. What is your advice, then, Sergeant Addison, to people, whether they are thinking about getting involved or coming to protest or just to people who live in the city and see this going on? Well, first of all, for people who live in the city who see this going on, who are caught up into it, thank you for your patience. Um, we understand that it's an incredible inconvenience if you are unable to move around the city, if you're having to listen to horn honking, if you're dealing with congestion, as, as well as all of the attention uh, that this draws. So uh, we thank uh, the residents of Vancouver for uh, for their continued patience as we deal with this. Uh, in terms of any upcoming protests uh, that may occur, as I say, we've, we're very experienced with this. We deal with this hundreds of times each year. Um, we're committed to providing a safe and lawful environment for people to um, exercise their democratic right to assemble and to express their views. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. Yeah, no problem, Simi. Appreciate that. That's Sergeant Steve Addison, spokesperson with the Vancouver Police Department, talking about their approach, how they dealt with the situation on Saturday. It was quite a mess. I mean, if in the city, you probably saw them even in your community too, because the convoys, they came from all over, you know, people wanting to do this drive downtown to support what was happening, what they see happening in Ottawa. And then there were counter protesters there, uh, people outside the hospitals, like you name it. It was, it, you know, a tense situation at times. But, you know, kudos to the VPD, keeping things moving, definitely a heavy presence uh, there to like monitor and, and see what was going on there. So that's their approach to it. And we appreciate their time this. This is Mornings with Simi. Back in with our contributor, Raji Sohal this morning. And Raji, I know we're going to talk about noise pollution, but just very quickly, is there a movie out there that you haven't seen that everybody else has seen? <laughs> yes, I'm embarrassed to admit it, but Dirty Dancing. What? Yes. How, how can never? Never. And it used to be Top Gun until I met my husband and he just was not going to talk to me until I watched it. So I watched Top Gun. So that's a classic. But now I've gone so long without seeing Dirty Dancing that I don't think I should see it. Yeah. And like, it, you'll just be like, what is this all about? I don't understand yeah. this. That's what happens <laughs> yes. if you wait too long. So yeah, I'm but getting I, great responses to this. If people want to email me, send me at cknw.com. Yeah. I just can't believe that someone hasn't seen Sound of Music. I cannot believe. Somebody I can't wrap my head around it. I know. And a bunch of people who wrote me said they hadn't seen Godfather or Lord of the Rings or Star no. Wars. Yeah, these oh. are big movies. I know. People can write me and tell me theirs. But with you this morning, we're going to be talking about noise pollution here, which I know is a hot topic for a lot of Ottawa residents right now. Yeah, with uh, all that noise pollution they're experiencing right there at Parliament Hill, residents have been complaining about it. You know, the, those horns, it's not just truck horns, but people have been using air horns, right? And those are made to alert people of oncoming danger. So they're purposefully loud, purposefully jarring. That's the point. And I talked to Ingrid Johnsrud. She's a clinical neuropsychologist and a professor at Western University. She studies this kind of thing. And she explains that trunk, uh, truck honking in Ottawa is categorically, it's considered noise pollution. 
This is very definitely noise pollution, and it is at such intense sound levels. It's so loud um, that it is. Uh, I suppose the most uh, direct effect is on help on hearing itself. The uh, cells of the ear that turn uh, sound waves in the air into electrical activity in the brain are very sensitive to noise. And in fact, uh, one of the major uh, reasons why older people have difficulty hearing its thought is because of the accumulated effects of uh, sound damage over their lifetimes. It's, it's sort of a, um, a dose dependent response, right? Uh, the more noise, the more damage you, you experience. And the noise levels in Ottawa are such that people who are close to that sound for long periods of time will probably be uh, experiencing hearing loss. And a lot of people who experience hearing loss also experience tinnitus, which is this very, can be very distressing uh, ringing in the ears that just doesn't go away. And um, it, it can be extremely psychologically distressing. Yeah, Simi, a lot of people in Ottawa have been talking about how a week of it was just driving them crazy to hear trucks honking their horns all day long. But then we heard earlier from our colleague David Aiken in Ottawa that last night was what he said the most peaceful or quiet compared to the previous 10 days where the, the honking went well into the night. But our sense of hearing is is very physical. And neuropsychologist Ingrid Johnsrud says that there are also non-auditory effects for exposure to that level, that high level of noise pollution experienced at the trucker convoy in Ottawa? A major effect is annoyance. And that may sound like a suck it up buttercup kind of thing. So you're annoyed, big deal. But uh, annoyance uh, is a really aversive state for the body and it increases levels of stress hormones and it can interfere with sleeping, with mood, with interpersonal interactions. It's, it has an effect on quality of life. Uh, a recent review by the World Health Organization has attributed nearly a million life years a year lost uh, due just to annoyance uh, from noise pollution uh, in the environment. And that's, at the, that's for relatively uh, less intense noise, like uh, road noise and that sort of thing. The level of noise experienced by people in Ottawa is a whole other level of noise. It's, it's so intense and loud with fireworks and air horns from those trucks. Oh, boy. And you can tell, too, like just hearing from people in Ottawa that it really has them on edge. Oh, yeah. And reporters have been talking about how challenging it's been to them, even when they get off air, off broadcast, just how jarring it is to be around that, that uh, noise pollution. And for people who live there, I mean, that's kind of, it's kind of like being terrorized by it. It's all the air horns and honking. It creates such a disturbance in people's lives. They can't escape it. And uh, if you've got children who nap, or if you work from home, then I feel like you're kind of just held hostage in that scenario, which makes me think, Simi, that didn't police officers need to come in earlier to curb that disturbance for the residents? You know, I've driven downtown here in Vancouver uh, and been stopped for 15 minutes or half an hour because some some group has staged a protest. But then the police quickly get in there and they keep them moving and everyone goes on their merry way. But for those people who've had to deal with these trucks honking their horns for, you know, over a week, that's intense. And Ingrid Johnsrud says that there are other negative effects on their bodies, too. 
there are important cardiovascular effects of noise on the body. So noise results in um, an increase in uh, stress hormones and it decreases cardiovascular health. It is related to high blood pressure, uh, to heart disease, to stroke. And those effects don't seem to have much to do with the noise at all. It just seems to be a, a body's response to loud noise. Our hearing evolved to be an alerting signal right? So um, our ears are never turned off. They're always on to detect possible threats in the environment. And um, then what we do is turn to look at where the noise is coming from to try to get a better sense of where that what that threat is. But that alerting function of noise means that our bodies respond regardless of our intentions. And that is so understandable, right? Because if it's once or twice, it's fine. But if it's a consistent amount of time, I can see how this would be very stressful on the body. Yeah, and people talk about, oh, well, everyone has a right to peaceful dem- peacefully demonstrate. That makes sense to me. But does, you know, honking your horn all day long, does that constitute peaceful uh, demonstration? Not I don't know. anymore. Not for residents in Ottawa, I don't think. <laughs> all right, Raji, thank you. Thanks, Simi. That's our Raji Sohal. This is Mornings with Simi. If you're a renter, I'm sure this is something that's happened to you. Something in your building needs fixing and you just can't get the landlord or the building owner to respond to that. Well, the city of Vancouver might be able to do something about that. We're going to talk about that and more now with our next guest, Sarah Kirby-Young, Vancouver City Councillor. Thank you very much for being here. Good morning, Jimmy. Now, first off, let me just ask you, since it's in the news this morning, I understand that something has, has been worked out when it comes to getting rid of the barge. Yes, uh, the barge is going to, can't be apparently refloated, and so it's going to be deconstructed over a period of weeks um, in order to remove it, and so it will no longer be a fixture on the shoreline down in English Bay. Oh boy, okay, do we have a timeline for that? Yeah, I think Transport Canada is the lead agency on this, working with the park board and supported by the city, so um, they'll be confirming kind of the specific timeline and plans, but it will take a number of weeks to go through that work because I'll have to look at hazmat and, and any shoreline um, impacts and uh, put a plan together and obviously do the deconstruction itself. So um, I'm sure they'll be putting out specific timelines, but uh, it, it, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take a period of time. Well, I'm sure there'll be a crowd watching that when it happens too. Uh, let's, let's talk about this um, motion that you are putting forward to Vancouver City Council this week. And this has to do with building maintenance. How did this come about? Well, it's something I've been watching for a period of time, and it really came uh, to a head for me over the Christmas holidays. Um, and between Christmas and New Year's, I was getting a lot of calls um, from media with respect to the Regal Hotel, who had lost their boiler and heat uh, during those really cold temperatures when it was reputed to be down to minus 20 with the wind chill. Remember, we're all bundled up and how cold it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were residents at the Regal at 1046 Granville that didn't have heat for days on end and kept getting reports. Um, I car with city staff that said, oh, no, no, the building ownership is fixing it and it's all good. And then still kept getting follow-up and hearing from residents that said, no, it isn't. And we still don't have heat in our rooms. And really contradictory circumstances um, when literally people can freeze to death when temperatures are that cold. And this building was built in 1910, really vulnerable tenants. And it was an issue for me. This is also a building that um, the city and council issued a legal injunction against in September uh, for other infractions against the building code in terms of water and structural damage. And so it really pointed out to me that when we have situations where there's a repeated um, 
infractions against the bylaw. We just don't have a lot of teeth in that bylaw to compel those repairs to happen really quickly and move it forward. And and that really worried me. So what is there right now on the books that would allow the city to do something? Well, yeah, I mean, you're giving the building owners, because this comes to all buildings in the city of Vancouver, I should say, and, and not just sort of, you know, single room occupancy or um, folks where li- vulnerable folks are living. So it could be, you know, any renter or any building um, from a life safety perspective. But if you're, you're giving the building owner a chance to kind of remedy something in good faith, if they're not, then staff can issue an order um, and they can bring it forward to council, which requires time to get on the council agenda. And then council can compel those repairs to happen. Do them. The city can do them themselves. The cost is passed on to the building owner, um, but and then they have sixty days to do it. But the clock really doesn't start ticking um, until there that infraction is issued, and until it comes forward to council. And so, it's months later on. You're dealing with heat, and it's minus ten. You can't afford to wait till springtime. Um, but you know, meanwhile, people are living in terrible conditions. Right. How specific do you think this bylaw has to be to make it work? I mean, you talked about like what what is the leeway a landlord is going to have. Well, I think I'd like to sort of look at it and say, does it have to be one set of fines for everyone? Is there a different scale, for example, uh, for repeat offenders where you have buildings where you constantly have infractions? Because things do break down. I mean, we know that, especially during extreme weather stress, we can see a lot of impacts on things like boilers. It happens. Um, and so it's not it's not disputing that at all. I think the question really is, could we have a sliding scale? So, for example, if you're speeding and you speed egregiously over a certain limit, you pay a higher fine. Um, than if you're just being a few kilometers over. So, you know, can we look at things like that? For example, can we shorten the period of time when the city can step in and carry out the repairs? Right, because obviously there's sometimes a situation like the one you described there, it becomes incredibly urgent. So you would need to get the building owner to respond more rapidly. Well, absolutely. I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, you remember how cold it was and you went outside and you were feeling it within just a few minutes. I can't imagine what it would be like trying to survive and to live without heat for four or five days between especially at Christmas and New Year's like it just seems such a such a a terrible situation for people right right so okay so you're bringing this to council tomorrow then so what is the process at that point so um hopefully council will support it um and then staff would come back with recommendations on strengthening the bylaw and so I haven't been really prescriptive in it um spoken to some examples that like we've talked about but um, I really just want to see us put some teeth into it because it, it just takes too long. Like even with the injunction that was issued previously to the owners of the same property, the regal in September, um, the issues have been going back and forth for two years, waiting for the building owner to fix some of these other water damage and other um, issues. And meanwhile, people are living in these conditions. It's just not acceptable. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time on that. No worries. Have a great day. You too. Sarah Kirby-Young, Vancouver City Councillor, talking about a motion she's bringing to council tomorrow. This would have staff look at ways that they could add some substance, some teeth really, to the city's standards of maintenance bylaw. Nobody in the freezing cold should have to wait for repairs to be done and say that, oh, it can't be done for, you know, weeks on end. But the question is, how do you do that? How do you differentiate between stuff that needs to be done right away and how do you set up